right, it's the week of January 17th, 2022, and this is the Fight Business Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Ogier, and today we're going to talk about UFC pay-per-view prices rising. It's not the UFC's fault, despite what a lot of you are saying and what I've seen out there. It also really doesn't benefit the UFC. That's right. Their prices going up doesn't really benefit them all that much. I'll break down why, and this will be the primary topic, at least at the start of the podcast. Then we're going to do UFC 270 pay-per-view buy predictions. New year, hopefully I'm a little bit more accurate. I wasn't that far off for the entire year of 2021. Had some hits, had some misses, but maybe I can, you know, get a feeling of what we're looking at for 270 and hopefully we get an actual source with some type of estimation that we can compare to. Then we're going to talk about CAA. Yes, Endeavor's arch nemesis, or rather... William Morris's arch nemesis in the talent in the talent game. They've represented several fighters, most notably Kevin Lee, Caitlin Chukagian, Francis Ngannou. All have had UFC contract issues. We'll break down why, how that works with Endeavor versus CAA, how that affects fighters, and what we can expect going forward. Because it's an interesting power dynamic, especially with the way that we've seen things play out with Ngannou's contract, Kevin Lee being released, etc. Then we're going to talk about Kayla Harrison. Now, I talked about when she entered free agency, what her best move was. We need to revisit that conversation because we've heard from Ariel Hawani's substack that PFL is the front runner, but we also know that Dana White had said that Harrison versus Nunes would be a huge pay-per-view, would be a, a mega show. She would, Harrison was at UFC 269. Lots to unravel here, and it's kind of shifted and changed the landscape a little bit for Kayla. So we'll revisit that conversation on where should Kayla Harrison go. And then lastly, we're going to talk about Amanda Nunes leaving ATT. She has left her longtime training camp to start her own gym. I'll break down a couple of reasons why I think she did that, including one or two you probably didn't think of. That's not really fighting related. So with that in mind, we have timestamps as the bottom at the bottom as always and welcome to a new year new fight business podcast let's dive right in all right so the first thing we have to talk about is the ufc pay-per-view prices have risen yet again it is now 74.99 basically 75 dollars uh to purchase a ufc pay-per-view back in 2019 the price of a pay-per-view was 59.99 that is a 15 dollar increase or about 30% increase over two years, something like that. I don't know that I'm, it's close to 33-ish percent. Yeah, so pretty nuts, 30, 33-ish. Um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's a big deal, it really is. Um, but I've seen a lot of people talking about how oh, that's just more money for the UFC, this is awful, why would you raise this? It's not more money for the UFC. It's not a good thing for the UFC. And let me explain why. Kevin Ioli reported when asked, and, and Dana White further elaborated on it following the uh, Cater Chikadze fight post, post-fight press conference, that ESPN made the decision and has the unilateral ability to raise pay-per-view prices. You've got to look at this in 
kind of a manufacturer retail relationship. If I make a toy, right, any any kind of toy, or even let's say here, I've got this mug full of tea because I'm a little under the weather. Knock, knock, hope, it, hope it's not COVID. Um, but, you know, I've got this change the world mug and I'm sipping my tea, it's all good. Let's say I make mugs, this type of mug for a living, and I distribute it to Walmart, Target, your mom and pop store, uh, it can be sold on Amazon, all that fun stuff. But I'm sending it out to retailers. I get paid and have a certain agreement with those retailers for a certain amount of stock and bulk. So Walmart might say, you know, these mugs are great. Uh, I will take a thousand of them for our Northeast region stores. We're going to test them out, see how they go. Uh, so let's let's do a thousand mugs every month for the next four months, see how it goes. And then we agree on a price because they buy in bulk. If they buy more than that, I probably give them a little bit of discount, etc. Um, and then I ship them off and that's that, right? Mugs continue to do well, all that stuff. Go to more stores, it's great. I will sell these mugs maybe, I don't know, say this mug, you can find this mug at Walmart for $10. If I'm making the mugs, I probably sell it for anywhere from five to seven dollars, um, depending, right? It's been a while since I've done some retail margins, but that sounds about right. And so, Walmart gets the profit of three dollars or so every mug once that gets sold to a consumer, just somebody shopping at Walmart. Now, here's the scenario that applies to the UFC and ESPN. If Walmart decides to raise the mug prices, because let's say they're they're flying off the shelves and Walmart doesn't want to negotiate for more stock because maybe it bumps up our deal where then I get paid more as the manufacturer, all that fun stuff. So let's say they raise the price to $12, right? I'm still selling the mug under our agreement of five to seven dollars let's say seven so they went from ten dollars to twelve dollars i don't see any of that money now i might have a provisional agreement that says that if they raise it a certain amount that i get a, a kickback or if that i sell a particular amount of units i get a kickback something like that but if, if they change the price walmart gets to keep all that money not me i don't get to see any of that and let's say I don't have any provisional agreements, right? And let's say we've got this distribution deal going. If Walmart raises the price to, let's say, $15 per mug, and that affects consumers buying the mugs, they're like, well, I like that mug, but 15 that's too much. Now I'm going to buy this $10 one over here that's different, whatever. Then that might end up affecting our restocking agreement because less mugs go off the shelf to the consumer and so Walmart doesn't need as many from me. But if they sell enough of those mugs at the new price of $15, they still make the same amount of profit. Right? So now, as the retailer, Walmart has essentially kept their same profit margins because now, yes, they're selling less mugs, but at a 50% markup, it ends up evening out. But now they're not ordering as much from me which means that they get to cut some of their costs on the distribution and vendor 
side. Now, keep in mind, again, there's generally a lot of contracts and, and clauses uh, that specifically state that Walmart wouldn't be able to do that, right? Uh, almost always there's some kind of provisional clause about raising uh, the retail price of something on the manufacturing side. It's, it's a whole thing, and it's usually based on percentages, but that just gives you an idea of, of a scenario that that is out there in some rare instances to this day. UFC and ESPN, we go back to their original deal when they decided to become the exclusive pay-per-view provider. We don't know the exact number, but we know that there is a number where when it comes to pay-per-view buys, once that threshold is hit, let's say it's 400,000, if a UFC event does over 400,000 pay-per-view buys, they split the revenue of every buy thereafter between ESPN and, and UFC. Right? We know that there's, there is a number in there that if it goes over this amount, it is split between UFC and ESPN in terms of, of revenue. Up until that number, however, from zero to 400,000, we know that ESPN gets all that money. Because the deal essentially said that the UFC gets a certain flat rate for putting on the pay-per-views equivalent to that amount of buys. So if I'm ESPN and let's say it does 200,000 buys, I get all of that money, but I've paid out to the UFC as though they're making around 400,000 on average for the year the deal was made. So that was 2019, 2020. Um, goth pandemic has really warped my mind with time, so I apologize. But when they initially did the deal. So if I'm ESPN and I can unilaterally raise the prices, right? This is where things get a little tricky. Because it's not that agreement and, and that change between splitting the revenue with the UFC or me as ESPN keeping all of the revenue from any pay-per-views is is not based on the cost of pay-per-views. It's based on the number of buys. So if I raise pay-per-view prices $5 to say $75, which keep in mind, again, this is not the first raise in the past two years, so they've been doing this for a while. If that causes the number of buys to go down, that doesn't necessarily hurt me as ESPN, right? If I am able to sell the pay-per-views at a higher price, and let's say it goes from, I don't know, 300000 to... 275,000 or something like that. If I'm able to do that, but then keep those margins by raising the pay-per-view price, that's a win for me. Because A, as ESPN, I get to keep all that money. And B, it keeps the number of buys below that trigger. That can that contractual trigger, which would then split the revenue between the UFC and ESPN. 
So, again, I could, I mean, let me pull up the calculator to find the exact math here and give you some real world numbers. But let's let's take my example. 275,000 buys, $75 is 20.6 million. 300,000 buys at $70 is 21. So that doesn't quite work, but let's say it's 280. That would that should do it. 280 times 75 yeah, is is 21. So again, if I am the ESPN and I know based on our most recent numbers, right, that and what the estimates that we've gotten from reputable sources have shown us that pay-per-views are doing well. Usman pay-per-views are around six, seven hundred thousand. Izzy pay-per-views are still strong. McGregor, of course, strong as always. We're going to see what Poirier did here against Oliveira at some point. Hopefully, we'll get those numbers out, but um, still waiting on them. But again, we're, we're going to see probably above more pay-per-views above that limit than not, at least as of late. The pandemic really helped grow the sport some more, reach new audiences. That COVID bump seems to have stayed for the most part. So would not be shocking if we keep seeing 500, 600, 700,000 buys, especially when you've got, you know, the champions that you have in place right now. So if I can start to raise my price and then knock the number of buys down, and then it doesn't have to be split with the UFC. That just means more money for me. Because it's only after that certain threshold that every buy thereafter, I have to split with the UFC. Up until then, I get to keep all that money. So technically, if I'm ESPN, I want to find the perfect price point, that equilibrium, where... I hit that number on the dot where I can raise pay-per-view prices to say, I don't know, $80, $85, whatever it is. Uh, I'm sure they have the analytics in the back looking at, you know, what price point will start to lose various tiers of customer and all that. But if I'm ESPN, my goal is to find a price point where I don't hit that trigger as long as it's still worth the loss of the number of buys, right? So if for my $75, $70 example, you had a 20,000 buy difference where same amount of money. So if the threshold was $280,000, or sorry, the threshold was 280,000 buys, at $75 per buy versus 300,000 at 70 where then I would have to split that last 20,000 with the UFC I want the 280,000 right wherever that threshold is I want to hit it and then maximize my dollars to hit that now if you were talking about a drop from I don't know 800,000 buys to 600,000, right? There's there's obviously a price point where you're going to have a bigger drop off and it's not worth it. But if I'm losing increments of 10, 20, 30,000, I'm probably okay with that if I'm ESPN. 
because I'm still getting that money and then I'm splitting even less with the UFC, which means obviously I get more. That's that's really what ESPN is looking to do. They're trying to find that price point where they can maximize the amount of money they get up until the trigger. So, yeah, we're at $75. It sucks if you're a UFC fan because, again, that's a huge increase compared to just two years ago. But I don't know that we're done yet, right? The next couple of estimates we get, we will see. Um, I also think that another factor that needs to be taken into account here is there are pay-per-views that don't do that well, right? That do maybe 200000 300000 well below. We've seen many pay-per-view estimates that are well below what we think that trigger number is, where the ESPN probably left money on the table. This is a way for them to recoup some of that. If you end up putting on a show where it you, you think it's going to be gangbusters, you have a very strong main event or what you feel is a main event, and maybe somebody drops out last minute, uh, maybe it just ends up not getting the type of buzz you originally thought, and then you only end up sending 200, selling 200K pay-per-views, that means ESPN recoups some of that lost money because if they're paying the UFC up to 400000 based on the old prices, they want to get as much money as possible per, per buy. And that, thus, they've got to raise their prices. So I think it's, it's a little bit of A, finding that price point, as well as B, for the pay-per-views that maybe don't sell as well because ESPN can't control the programming, right? ESPN can't say, oh, no, you can't put on that pay-per-view. You've got to put on these guys or these guys. At least as far as we know, ESPN has no control over that. So this kind of combats any cards the UFC might put on where, okay, well, we've got to have our fighters fight and meet their contractual obligations, so we have to put on you know, uh, Nunez versus Spencer or something like that. That's not going to sell super well, but we've got to do this. This helps hedge that a little bit for ESPN. So I hope that was all easy enough to follow. If you have other questions or comments about that, let me know. I know I kind of went with some weird numbers there, but I wanted to just really drive home some of the points, but the UFC pay-per-view price rise again is not the UFC's benefit. It is ESPN's. ESPN is the winner of that. It hurts the UFC, if anything, because their fans are going to complain. They're going to look to Dana White, as we've seen, and say, what's going on? How are you, How could you raise pay-per-views like this? And they're going to blame the organization, even though it's their broadcast partner. So, yeah, I hate it as much as, as you do, but so does Dana. So does the UFC. That's unfortunately how it works. All right. Next up, speaking of pay-per-views pay-per-view buys let's take our best guess at ufc 270 this is an interesting one because again Nganu should have been a megastar if he goes out there and he mercs stipe in the first match i think he is the biggest drawing heavyweight since fedor right i i think he really yeah Fedor is, is the wrong example because I, I wouldn't say Brock, right? He's not quite, he wouldn't be Brock Lesnar level necessarily. Then again, who knows? He, he would have been a much bigger deal than he is now. That much I do know. So, I mean, he goes out there, he puts on the second worst performance of his career next to fighting Derek Lewis, which that was just a travesty. But 
he goes out there and he gets dominated 50-44. I mean, Stipe just wrestles him to the ground, just outworks him, and his hype dies. And then he fights Derek Lewis, again, one of the worst heavyweight fights ever. Just a terrible time. And then he starts to come back and be himself and goes on a crazy tear of knockouts, including getting his revenge against Stipe, flatlining him, looking like his old self. But the hype didn't return with him, unfortunately, at least not in the same way it was. And and as we've said here many times on this podcast, consistently winning and building a personality and hype through dramatic finishes, through your personality, all of that is how you reach superstardom, right? You don't always have to win, but you have to have a big personality outside of that. You have to beat a rising star or you've got to always win and and capture everyone's attention in order to really hit that next level. At this point, I don't know what Nganu's drawing power really is. It it seems so muted compared to what it was back at UFC 220, right? Um, I, I mean, it, it's it's like night and day. You don't have anyone really talking about Nganu as much. You have a, hardcore fans talking about him, but outside of that, it's it's not the same vibe. So that's one thing. Cyril Gunn, on the other hand, does have a little bit of buzz around him. Since Nganu's rise before he lost to Stipe is, is the most notable comparison that I can find for Cyril Gunn. It's not quite as big as that. I mean, Nganu was really hyped up at one point. Um, but Gunn still has buzz around him. Pay-per-views are drawing pretty well. It is a French athlete that's undefeated and could help be that guy to really get the French market invested in the UFC, right? We know France just legalized MMA recently, at least compared to several other countries. This could really help boost the scene if you have a French UFC champion, especially if he goes out there and, say, just tools Cyril Gan or, I mean, Francis Ngannou. I mean, that's a, that's a big deal, right? Uh, so he's got some buzz, but it's not the same as... as the rising in Ganyu. If you look at the embeddeds, I mean, and it's hard because it's just a couple days in, they're getting to the million mark. My guess is they will reach, I'd imagine, the million mark at some point. Um, at least a couple of them will. But, you know, it doesn't seem to have the same buzz outside the hardcore community. You got the semi-casuals interested in it, for sure, because, A, it's a heavyweight fight that is intriguing for the first time in a long time. And B is just kind of, I don't know. You, you just really just don't know what's going to happen here, right? Is, is gone going to go out there and just style on Nganu for five rounds or however many rounds to knock him out? Is Nganu going to land the big punch and just completely kill the hype train? We, we don't really know. There's a lot of intrigue in that regard, but I don't see it being as big as, a lot of the other pay-per-views we've seen recently, right? Um, I, I just don't feel like it's got that much hype to it. And I know I've seen conflicting reports where some people are saying, hey, it's it's I've got that big fight feel. 
I know Hilwani has said that. I know um, a couple others have said that, but I'm not seeing it, right? I'm not seeing a lot of the casual fan base engaging and saying, oh man, are you going to watch Iganu versus Gone? Or having, you know, a couple of my friends reach out and say, hey, is is that fight on? Or when does this guy fight next, right? That's a good indicator for me. There are a couple friends I have that are, are true blue casuals, but every once in a while will hit me up about a fight and then I know it's probably trending pretty well if it hits them and that's not a make or break that's anecdotal evidence right um but i haven't heard anything from them i'm not seeing i'm not seeing the same buzz i think it'll do all right i think maybe 400 or 500 thousand but i don't think this is going to be a 700 800k pay-per-view i just don't i don't see enough promotion which we'll get to in a second and buzz in the casual community promotion is a big thing here though and we'll talk about this a little bit more when we get into the caa versus endeavor discussion but they're not really promoting the fight this much the ufc right Nganu is not going out doing you know talks on mainstream media too much gone has done a couple of of interviews but nothing you know doesn't seem like the UFC marketing machine is behind this as much. I think Francis's recent contract statements have a lot to do with that, but it just doesn't seem to be out there in the same way. I don't know. I, I'm going... I'm going to say it's elevated enough just because of intrig- how intriguing it is. I'm going to say 500k. But that's, even then, it's, it's a little bit high for me. But if, if Gone versus Derek Lewis did 400K, I think it'll at least do that. I'm going to say four to 500K, and I'll go 500K just because it should be at least 500K. Um, as a hardcore fan, right, in me, I, that's what it should be. But I wouldn't be shocked at 400 either. If it went to 600, could see that too, but I'd, I'd be very surprised if we're looking at 700K or above. Even 650 seems pushing it in my mind. I think that this is a giant heavyweight fight, has a lot of implications not only for the heavyweight title, but also for UFC fighter contracts in general. Um, but yeah, man, I don't know. Let, let me know in the comments. Let me know how you feel. I, I know as most of you watching this are hardcore fans, probably very excited for this fight. And I admit it's one of the most intriguing heavyweight fights for me in a long, long time. Um, let me know. Let me, let me know how you feel about this one because it's, I don't know. I just don't think it's outside of that hardcore and semi-hardcore bubble. I think that's where the line ends. I really think it that that's where the line ends for this one. Um, so let me know in the comments your thoughts and hopefully we get a prediction or an ad, not a prediction, we get an estimate from a, a reputable source and we can revisit that and see how far I'm off on this one, but I, yeah, I'm, I'm going to say 500k. And even then I don't feel great about it. Sorry. That's just, just how I'm feeling. All right. I'm flipping up the topics a little bit here. See if you notice, we'll see if some people just jumped ahead and see whatever. Um, flipping up the topics a little bit here though. Uh, I want to talk about CAA versus Endeavor because we just talked about Francis and Ganu, um, and the pay-per-view buys we can expect for 270. So, if you haven't noticed already, if you've been living under a rock in the MMA world, Nganu is out here t- 
talking about how terrible his UFC contract is, saying that he's fighting for 500, 600K and he's not going to do that anymore. I don't know if that's the actual purse he's making as a champion. It might be. We've seen that on occasion. I would be a little bit shocked by that. I would think if he's defending the title, he's at least making a million flat, but maybe not. Um, either way, you know, uh, because, well, that's, I mean, I say that, but then I remember Stipe complaining about making 500K against uh, Overeem in his title defense, and Overeem made like 800K because of his grandfather didn't contract, so there was that. But, yeah, it's one of those things where Nganu and uh, Markel Martin, his his uh, manager, agent, have, have been very vocal about UFC not playing ball and have disputed a lot of the UFC's claims that, you know, Nganu's not, you know, taking fights and all this other stuff. They've really put a lot of stuff out there that the UFC does not like and Endeavor will not like. But CAA is the other big talent firm that competes with WME, William Morris Endeavor, or what was WND, WME before it all became Endeavor. But, I mean, the, when you talk about talent agency rivals and all this stuff, uh, if you remember a show called Entourage, you had uh, Jeremy Piven's character based apparently off of Ari Emanuel and Endeavor and all these talent war relations and wars things. If you ever watched that show, I mean... We're, we're talking about two very big rivals, right? In the talent agency space. So it's, it's not shocking or surprising when Endeavor buys the majority of the UFC and then really buys the rest of it that they start to maybe have struggles with CAA wanting certain things because obviously CAA is a big enough agency that they are going to negotiate as though they would in other major sports for other, you know, high profile, talented athletes uh, and actors and things of that nature. They're going to want things like a higher pay as being champion, a break in between certain fights, right? Um, as was the whole issue with doing the interim title fight with uh, Cyril Gaon and, and Derek Lewis was, you know, the UFC kind of pigeonholed Nganu into having to do that because they knew his visa was having issues, at least according to the story we know. Um, it's not shocking to see Endeavor kind of play this way. And they can do it. Legally, because they own the UFC outright, so they can they can do these things. There's nothing preventing them from saying, "Yeah, you're with CAA." Well, okay, maybe you should go elsewhere. I'm sure you could look at potential lawsuits if it was ever blatantly obvious that, "Hey, I've been discriminated against because of my agency or what have you." You could go that route, possibly, maybe, but. It would be a long uphill battle, and you'd need some pretty damning evidence, which right now there technically is none, right? You have Kevin Lee, who was represented by CAA, who got released after losing, right? Going win-loss, nothing surprising about that. You have Caitlin Chukagian, who beat Jennifer Maya and was surprised she didn't get 
re-upped, but isn't the most exciting fighter and is in a scenario where she lost pretty poorly to the champ Valentina Shevchenko. She's now kind of hanging around at the top, knocking off contenders. Um, you got a UL Ribeiro situation, right? Now, you could give Chukagin another chance against Shevchenko, and I think that's totally warranted, but the UFC is well within their rights to say, you know what, we're not going to pick up your contract. You fought it out, we're not going to. Right? If they can do what they did to Leslie Smith in saying, hey, here's your money uh, because Lena Landsberg missed weight, here's your money, and then, yeah, we're not extending you. Goodbye. They could certainly get away with letting go of, of Chukagin. Uh, Nganu, again, is in a situation where we know that there is a maximum contract length now, and we also know that it gets added on one year should Francis win. And we know he's also been extended because he, quote-unquote, was unable to fight on the Houston card where they did Lewis versus Cyril Gone, even though it was a well-known issue ahead of time. They offered him that fight knowing that he couldn't make it. That's the story we're hearing, at least. So, when it comes to promoting this fight, as I mentioned in the pay-per-view buy prediction, if you've noticed there hasn't been a lot of promotion, I think that's a strategic move by the UFC. If you're the UFC, and Ngannou is saying these things, you do not want a giant spotlight on him. Because if he wins on Saturday, then that draws more of a spotlight to fighter pay and fighter contract issues. Which, again, has been bubbling over from several champions now. You've got Henry Cejudo trying to come back, talking about terrible pay. You've got Nganu, You've got John Jones. You've, you've got a lot of fighters that are complaining now at the same time. And, and, and having issues. You don't want a big spotlight on that with casual fans and mainstream media catching wind. Because if it then goes into the mainstream media that the UFC is underpaying their fighters and it's a whole thing and it's these issues, that's the type of publicity you 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 do not want if you're the UFC. So I think they're probably strategically not promoting this fight as much as they could. Because if Ngana wins... I truly believe he sits out. I think he either gets what he wants, which is some boxing fights, some higher pay, all that fun stuff, or I think he sits out until his contract literally runs out and then he goes on to do boxing or do MMA elsewhere. I think that's probably the most likely scenario. He seems like he's committed to sticking to his guns. He's being repped by CAA who will help him stay committed to that action and that doesn't like Endeavor and I'm sure is in Francis's ear saying, look, we'll take care of you or we'll figure it out, but just wait this out. And again, not hard to see when you look at Jake Paul and what he's actually done in terms of showing fighters like, hey, you get released, you know, come fight me, you'll make more money than you ever did in the UFC. You got Jacare Souza. Oh man, that breaks my heart in so many ways. You got Jacare Souza out here about to box. I mean, got Anderson Silva boxing and actually doing pretty well. I think Anderson Silva 
you know, is just going to keep doing that for a bit. Um, you know, you've got lots of people making that move because they see the money and they see what they've been missing out on, especially if they have name value. UFC does not want to draw attention to that right now. Not at all. Not at a time when they've had record profits and now they have to keep that train going. Remember, the fun thing about corporations and about running a huge global conglomerate is you can have record profits and a record quarter and people are going to love you and say great job and all of that and then they're going to expect you to do that the next quarter and the next year that's your new starting point and they've cut a lot of costs we've gone over that costs have been cut they will continue to get cut where they can but they're running out of room on that scenario so you are in a scenario and in a situation here where you do not want to draw any negative attention to fighter pay at this point. So you you don't promote the fight as much. And CAA, I believe every fighter under their umbrella will continue to have issues with the UFC because Endeavor certainly isn't going to play nice with them. If they're advocating for their client as they should, Dana White's not going to play nice with them. And there are plenty of other fighters that will step in under different management teams and different agencies that will play nice. So we'll see what happens come Saturday, but it's a big fight for multiple reasons. If Ngannou loses, I think he immediately goes off to do boxing and all that other stuff. I don't think it has as big of an impact um, because, oh, he's not the best anymore, right? Which is, is a garbage argument for so many reasons, but... It'll it'll be very much like when Chris Cyborg lost to Nunes, and people seem to just write her off then. Like, oh, okay, well, she lost to Nunes, you know, Nunes is the GOAT, all this stuff. Still wish we could have seen that rematch. Because, yeah, maybe Nunes marks her again or beats her again. Sure. Maybe not. We don't know. We've seen multiple rematches lately where it's at least been close, right? Um, two that come to mind, speaking of women, are... Rose's fights with Ioana and Rose's fights with Wei Li, right? Both first round, you know, well, Ioana the first fight wasn't, but both pretty dominant knockouts for Rose in the first fight. Second fight's both really close, really close battles. But again, if Ngannou loses on Saturday, he's not going to get an opportunity to come back and try and win the belt, I don't think. At least not under his his requirements. Should he buckle and cave to the UFC? Then yeah, the UFC definitely, as, as stated, well, if you want to be here, we'd love to have you. If not, go on. Yeah, the UFC is m- more than happy to have Nganu in the umbrella if he's willing to play ball their way. But if he's sticking to his guns, no, that's not going to happen. If he wins then and he really sits out a full year, then you've got a very interesting scenario. Because, again, you'll have, maybe the first time in a long, long time, a true champion who is still within a year of his last title defense being announced for another promotion or a boxing promotion or what have you. 
that's a big deal. And again, UFC could always kind of cave a little bit if if they see certain indicators they don't like or they see certain press. You never know, but expect more friction from CAA managed fighters and expect a lot more of them to speak out. That's what I would say, especially if Ngana wins. All right. Now to the topic we technically should have done at the start of the according to the start of the show lineup. Heavyweights in the co-main event. Whew. I could tell that y'all really love I mean really love heavyweights in the co-main event of Fight Night cards. Just going to sip and let you simmer on that for a second. Yeah, it just tastes so sweet. See, Jake Collier, man, I'm butchering his name, I know. And Chase Sherman in the co-main event of, of a fight night, right? <sighs> this boils back down to market and customer segmentation. Why in the world would Jake Collier and Chase Sherman be in the co-main event over Chukagian and Maya when Chukagian and Maya are ranked number two and four respectively in their division. Why why are they above so many other fights that were on that card? Right? Especially when you have guys coming off of losses. Why? Why are they in the co-main event? We know or well, let me rephrase, we don't know for certain, but we there seems to be an indication that heavier weight classes tend to trend better with casual audiences. The correlation isn't super strong. I forget exactly what it is. Uh, Paul Giff's paper on Fighter MRP touches on it a little bit. But we there seems to be some correlation, which, I mean, I find that true in boxing, right? Um, I seem to care more about the heavyweight boxing fights and and the heavyweight boxing fights seem to be the big ones that everybody talks about outside of boxing fans as opposed to other weight classes outside of of Mayweather and Canelo, of course. But beyond that, I mean, heavyweight has been kind of the weight class that a lot of casual fans are drawn to in boxing. Same seems to apply in MMA. For whatever reason, casual audience wants to see the biggest, baddest dudes on the planet, as they're called, um, duke it out. So, forget how long ago it was at this point, but Lawrence Epstein mentioned in an interview that there's at least seven customer segments, that they have their fans segmented into seven different types Hardcores, of course, are people that are going to buy everything and anything and all of that. People like you and me watching this podcast, um, unless you're a friend or family member of mine, which, hello, thank you for watching, um, where we're going to watch pretty much everything, right, one way or another. Then you've got the semi-hardcores who are watching most things, but maybe we'll skip a Nunez Spencer or, a, you know, a boring fight night card that they just don't on paper seem to care about sure watch most everything else and then it kind of continually goes from there we don't know what the ufc calls each segment and all of that but we know that they have at least 
seven segments of their customer base. A big misconception that hardcore MMA fans have is that the UFC is trying to engage with them more. The UFC is trying to engage with hardcore fans the least. That is the segment you you make sure is happy enough, but you really are bare bones engagement. Because they are a brand promoter, they are they are someone that loves the UFC. We're talking about the people that defend Dana day in and day out, regardless of what he says, that are you know, train I train UFC, all this, this type of stuff. You they are the fans that really you just have to put out the product and they're gonna consume it and they're gonna pay you money for it. That's not who the UFC wants to spend more engagement dollars on and more marketing on. They could care less about you. As long as you are okay with the base enough product, they they don't want to market to you at all. Drake Riggs, great friend of mine. Done many a video with him. Uh, he is as hardcore as it gets in some aspects to this this life, and I, I know he gets very very upset regarding unranked heavyweight fights in the co-main events, but he's still going to watch them. And yes, that's also part of his job, so it comes with it, but. Even if it wasn't part of his job, he's still going to watch the fight nights. Right? And that's the thing. UFC, I am sure, if you're a hardcore fan, has pissed you off one way or another in terms of matchmaking or in terms of various marketing. And you're still here. They just want to make sure you're still here. That's it who they're really trying to engage with and who they're really trying to spend marketing dollars on are segment on the other end, the casual side, the most casual side, the guy that is either, I mean, ideally is more of just unaware or maybe ever so slightly a demoter, which is, again, someone who's, who says, oh, UFC sucks, it's it's terrible, blah, blah, blah. They don't want to go after the hardcore demoters because you're never going to change their mind. It's not worth the money. But if they're kind of leaning that way, it's like, oh, I don't know. You know, I don't, I'm not really into it. It's not my thing. It's not that cool. If you're a little bit on the fence where you're not hardcore, they want you. And then they want everybody else who's like, eh, just kind of neutral to it. Or yeah, I've heard of UFC, but I don't follow it, whatever. And and just kind of blows it off. Doesn't really have any positive negative feelings or just kind of, yeah, that's not my thing. That's who they're wanting to spend the most amount of engagement dollars towards. Why? Because you as a hardcore fan will spend a ridiculous amount of money over your lifetime on UFC merchandise. You will. Whether it's ESPN Plus subscription and then buying pay-per-views, whether it's uh, going to live events and getting tickets, various merch, 
shirts, hats, fight kits, all of that stuff. Going to meet and greets and then buying photograph things and all of that stuff. You are a, a an important cog in the machine where you're constantly giving money to the promotion in one way or another. Again, as long as you're just engaged, you're fine. They want to take the most casual fans and turn them into hardcore fans so that they can, again, throw a bunch of money in continuously over the course of the year. You've seen, I'm sure, recently about the cost of being a UFC fan is like $1,900 or something if you pay for everything, all of that stuff uh, in a particular year. I mean, that's what the UFC wants. They want all of their fans to be that. But since you're already a hardcore, they know that you're going to do that regardless. And if they can find a way to convert the most casual, the huh, what's that UFC, eh, it's whatever, and convert that person into a hardcore fan, then they found the secret sauce, right? So if you've got any kind of data that trends towards appealing more to the casual fan, utmost casual fan, you're going to act on that. And that's what heavyweight co-made events are. In any business, if you've got a promoter who's there thick and thin, you do not spend marketing on them. You do not. You might reward them, which you do through, you know, uh, the, what is it? The fight club where you can sign up and get a shirt and get early access to tickets and all this stuff or, or contests, right? There's a bunch of howler head contests and all this other stuff you can do. Um, win a, win Dana seats, all that stuff. Yeah. You reward them and you, you give them loyalty perks and things like that. But you don't try and, and spend marketing towards them. You are marketing people that are not spending that money on you yet because you can't get more out of that fan. If you're a hardcore fan, there's very little return on your marketing dollar because you're already spending most of your money that you could on the product that you're ever going to. Whereas if you're a casual fan, you've spent nothing on my product and I want you to start spending money like the hardcores. So... I'm going after them. If there is data, which again, we think there is, it seems to correlate that heavyweight fights draw in those most casual fans, they're going to be co-main events because co-main and main events are the biggest draws. And they're going to keep main events where they are because again, they're looking for the next star. They're kind of putting in that R&D budget of, hey, if this guy, you know, if Chikadze destroys Cater, and comes out with a great promo, maybe he starts to build some buzz and momentum behind him. Maybe he challenges Volkanovski and he beats Volkanovski and he's out here calling all these names, all this stuff. Holy crap, now he's a star. Yeah, they'll put in the R&D for that, for sure. And they need to have those guys in the main events. But co-main, where you still have some pull, you do heavyweight fights. You draw in the casual viewer where you can. And yeah, you're not going to draw in a lot, but if somebody has no idea what the rankings are and they've not really followed the UFC and they happen to flip the channel because it was on ESPN, which is another factor, right? On cable, they happen to flip to ESPN and they see two heavyweight guys go at it and they see Collier doing what he did to Sherman. They might be, wow, that was crazy. And they might stick around for the main event. And then they might be part of the buzz for 
Chikadze if he, you know, flash KOs Cater in a crazy fashion, et cetera, et cetera. So that's why you have heavyweight co-main events. Let me know your thoughts on it. Let me know if any of you actually like those types of main events or co-main events rather. Um, I see a lot of people on social media that don't, but let me know if any of you actually do like seeing those big guys slug, slug it out co-main. And yeah, uh, Drake, if you're watching, I'm sorry, buddy, but it's just going to keep happening, man. It's just going to keep happening. All right. Two more quick segments to wrap this up. And I'll probably roll it all into one, but we'll see. Kayla Harrison in the news yet again. Era Hwane saying on the stub stack that PFL is the front runner. Uh, Ali Abdelaziz, Harrison's manager, on Twitter saying that now that Nunez has gone off to do her own gym, we've got to make the fight, have her be in the UFC. Obviously, UFC 269, if you didn't see the behind-the-scenes footage, I highly recommend you look at it. Harrison was moved to the front row during the Nunez-Pena fight. Pretty sure that she was going to be escorted into the cage to do a stare-down if Nunez had beaten Pena. But instead, Pena beats Nunez. And you can see in the footage, Harrison is, is cursing, clearly upset that Nunez lost. And yes, they're teammates and all that, but I don't think that's the reason. It, it did not seem like that was the reason why, right? Um, and then you had Dana White, post-fight press conference, say Harrison Nunes would have been a major, major fight, which he would only be saying that if he had something lined up. He had just said a week or two earlier that Harrison should probably stick with the PFL, all this, blah, blah, blah. No, he was definitely trying to get that fight made. So... Now we've got news. PFL is the front runner. What's changed? Well, obviously Nunez lost. And I'm sure Dana doesn't want to sign someone like Harrison, who, again, is going to struggle to make 135, right? Um, I believe she had one fight at Titan FC in between PFL seasons at 140, where she did kind of a weight cut for that. But she's a bigger girl. She fights at 155 in the PFL. 145 is really where you're expecting that fight. You're, you're probably looking at a featherweight clash between Nunez and Harrison should Nunez get past Pena. But now Nunez is, is dethroned in pretty terrible fashion, too. I mean, she got beat. <laughs> um, so, I mean, did, did well at the beginning, but then gassed out like old Nunez did and just... just it, it was rough. And so, even if Nunez comes back and beats Pena, that shine for the Harrison fight is a little bit gone, and at least as of right now. And Harrison is a free agent only for so long, right? She's not going to just sit around and wait forever. So, here's my thoughts. I said before that PFL was always the best place for Harrison. I still believe that. You have a company that has a ton of investor money that seemingly keeps getting more investor money that is paying you a million dollars to fight not that great competition that you're steamrolling. You are the star of that company too, so I'm also pretty sure you're getting promotion, you're getting endorsements that other fighters won't get. It cannot hurt to be Kayla Harrison in the PFL. Now, 
I would say, if anything, she's lost a little bit of leverage, right? Because she could always tease going to the UFC and still be a free agent, and then who knows what happens. We've seen that with Brock Lesnar being teased, come, comes in, smack talks with uh, DC, and then the fight never materializes because he uses the UFC and WWE against each other to negotiate and then says, yeah, I'm going back to WWE pretty much because of the ESPN Plus uh, pay-per-view buys and the paywall. Harrison could have done that. If Nunes goes out there and flatlines Pena and they do a stare down and there's buzz and hype, Harrison can go back and forth between PFL and UFC and go to PFL and say, look, you got to pay me more on top of just a million dollars. I've got to have these things, these guarantees and go to the UFC and say, look, I've got a million dollars just waiting for me over there. You've got to give me a really good contract if you want me to come in and step in there with Nunez, who everybody is, you know, saying the goat and all this stuff. I mean, that was that was a great scenario for Kayla. And then Nunez lost. And I think she lost a fair amount of leverage. Luckily, the PFL still desperately needs her, so... I'm not shocked to hear that she's the front runner uh, or PFL is the front runner for Harrison from Hilwani because PFL really did not want to lose Harrison. Harrison is a homegrown star. The biggest name the PFL has needs her as an anchor as they try and get more people signed on to grow the promotion. If she goes off to, to UFC, it's not great. It's not a good time. The women's division, I don't know that you have a 155-pound tournament. I guess you have Julia Budd signed, which is good, but it's not going to be the same. So they still desperately need her. So Harrison can go back and say, okay, let's do this, but she doesn't have as much leverage as she did if Nunez wins that fight. That being said, if Dana really thinks Nunez is going to bounce back, flatline, Pena and just, you know, write it off as a GSP moment, right? Uh, GSP Sarah moment or whatever. Then, okay. Well, well worth the investment. Let's go ahead and sign Harrison now. Have her fight somebody in the featherweight division. Or really just Holly Holm as a gatekeeper. And then you, you set up a showdown. But the risk there is that if Pena beats Nunez again... Then you're left with Harrison as being paid quite well and not necessarily being a draw. Right? Here's the thing. We we all talk about Harrison in the hardcore fan base, but we don't know what she draws in the casual eyes. We know based on the TV ratings, it's not particularly high, but that's also TV ratings for super long broadcasts. It doesn't take into account ESPN+. Plus. There's no telling how she would do with the UFC audience because we also know there's a lot of just UFC fans. Not MMA fans, UFC fans. The hardcores. Hardcores, hardcores, so to speak. Um, so again, we're at a scenario where I think it's still in Kayla's best interest to go to the PFL. I think she does have enough leverage, and this is my bold... Hot take prediction for 2022 if you want to take it. I think she has enough leverage to sign with the PFL and leave the door open for a Nunez fight. Right? We know that the PFL is okay letting fighters go fight in other promotions. Harrison did it at Titan FC. 
in between seasons. I would not be shocked if she somehow negotiates a, yeah, I'll come back and help promote your company and help be that anchor, but you've got to allow me a clause in my contract to go to the UFC and fight Nunes. Be outside the season, of course, but I could see that. I could easily see that. Would it be a scenario where you go fight Nunez and then you have to come back to the PFL? Well, UFC probably won't be okay with that, right? UFC would want to keep her. But could probably work out something where if she beats Nunez, contract gets converted and the UFC picks up part of her contract and, and pays for part of her and all that stuff. I could easily see that deal being made, right? UFC did the trade with one and all that fun stuff, which was kind of a trade, but... You know, well, it was an interesting scenario. I could easily see this being the next collaboration with the UFC and another promotion. Is Kayla goes to the PFL, fights the season, has a clause that allows her to go fight Nunez, and if she beats Nunez, UFC picks up her contract, gives a kickback to PFL. Maybe sends, I don't know, one of their own over there, although I don't know if that would really happen. But if, if there's some fighter women's high-ranking women's fighter dying to go to the PFL, you could do that too. But I think more likely they'd pick her up and then kick PFL back some money because that's what the PFL desperately needs. I could see that happening. But PFL is still the best move for Harrison and where I expect her to go, barring any, barring any unforeseen circumstances where it makes sense for Nunez to defend against Harrison quickly, right? Which, I mean, I can't imagine that happens. I, I really can't. There's no scenario I can imagine where they, other than, let's say, UFC 271, you can't get Whitaker and Izzy there. You scramble and make Pena versus Nunez too. Nunez flatlines Pena and then you do Harrison. But that scenario crazy unlikely. At this point, I mean, we're already mid-January, but something like that. There'd have to be some crazy, crazy thing. Otherwise, otherwise, I think Harrison goes to PFL, and I think it's still the best move for her. Use that leverage to leave the door open. And if Nunez never wins and gets her championship back, then okay, then Harrison is stuck with the PFL. It, it this is this should be doable to add that clause in, but who knows? Who knows? But that's my prediction. I think Harrison does go back to the PFL. It's it's the right move for her. It's free money at this point. She'll still get to fight Bud and build up her name a little bit more. We'll see. We'll see what happens, but anything's anything's possible. She could go to the UFC. I don't, I don't know. But PFL is the best business choice for her. Still stand strong in that, that statement. All right, last thing real quickly here. Amanda Nunez has left American Top Team to go start her own gym. Uh, ties into... Kayla Harrison discussion we just had, but I think beyond that, right? I think this is also a signal of a retirement move for Nunes. I do think that this helps ease tensions should you end up with a Nunes Harrison match, because if they were both training at ATT, that could really become an issue um, if that fight does materialize. But I think this is more so a retirement move for Nunes. 
She's talked about wanting to retire semi soon. She's been at the top of the mountain for a while. She's gone through pretty much everyone. Um, she's still seen as the women's goat by a lot of people. Um, and, and even if that kind of fades with the rise of someone else or, you know, if Shevchenko ends up challenging at 135 or does some crazy stuff, all this, even if that notion fades where Nunez is no longer the goat and all of this, um, she's still a hall of famer instantly and still one of the greatest women's fighters of, of all time. There's no arguing that given her resume, given what she's done, her dominance, you, you've got to put her up there on that all time list. Um, so her legacy is cemented at this point. She has a child now. She's talked about retirement. I think setting up your own team is yes, maybe getting away for that fight. But I think it's also you start your own gym. Look at look at what James Krause and Habib have done. Both moved into coaching roles. I mean, heck, look at look at the amount of coaches that used to be fighters that were okay or were, you know, good but maybe not like amazing that have now transitioned into coaching roles and that's their their job and they're they're very good at it. Right? I mean, it's not it's not shocking that you start your own camp, you you get new fighters to come train under you, you start coaching people, and then you kind of make that natural transition to stay in the fight life, but not competing. You save your body, you're able to spend more time with your family. It's it's a natural progression. Habib's done it. Expl- I mean, Habib's smashed it at that. He's undefeated as a coach. He's doing great cornering work, and he's he started his own promotion. Nunez could start her own promotion too if she wants. She's got the name. She could easily start a a, a promotion, a women's promotion, or a regional promotion, or what have you, and do just fine. Right? I mean, it makes all the sense in the world as a transitory step. That's all I'm saying. Yes, the Harrison fight rumors and Ali kind of egging that on all that. Yes, yes, of course. Of course, that's, I'm sure, a part of it. But I really believe it's more of a let's start setting up the exit plan, the exit strategy. Because Nunes isn't going to do this forever. I'm sure the Pena loss sucked. I'm sure she wants to get the belt back. But if you listen to her comments even since then, she doesn't seem to have the same drive as she once did. And that's been going on for a while where she's said, you know, I'll fight a couple more times. Maybe I'll retire. And and Dana, at one point, right, when they were trying to arrange a couple of fights, were like, if she retires, I'll kill her because we, we just got her promotion here, just got her there. Retirement's been on her mind for a bit. So you go start your own gym. You train fighters. You coach them. You get paid by getting them signed up you can work with very top level fighters because of your name and your legacy it's it's retirement man it's being smart 
setting up a life outside of fighting. We've seen all too often the amount of fighters who end up coming back and saying, well, okay, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to retire. I'm done. And then they come back and say, all right, let's do this. Nick Diaz is a perfect example of this. It seems like he needs to fight for the money and he, his lifestyle, right? He did not set up a lot of things outside of fighting. So he kind of had to come back. I mean, we've seen a lot of fighters fight way past their pride. Retire, come back a couple years later. They miss the itch, sure, they miss all that, but they also miss the spotlight. They miss being part of the fighting game. They miss all of that. This is a natural step, a normal, healthy step to take. So I think this is Nunez setting up a retirement more so than Harrison fight. Um, I hope it's a wildly successful gym. Again, Nunez has earned it. Some of you that know me or have followed me for a long time know that I have not and still will not call Nunez the women's goat. But my feelings aside on that, she is still one of the best to ever do it. And if she wants to retire and she wants to start a gym and do all that, that makes sense. It's a smart business plan. So that's what I think that is. Let me know your thoughts on her starting your gym. Do you think it is, like I, like I think, a retirement plan? Do you think it is just trying to get away from ATT because of the Harrison stuff? Let me know your thoughts. Because I, I really see it more as a, all right, I've talked about retirement for a couple of years. I'm going to go start this gym. I'm going to go get ready to hang them up. That's what this signals to me. So I'm just saying. All right, guys. Well, that wraps up a new Fight Business Podcast, the first of 2022. If you are listening on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or audio version at all, I apologize. They have not been getting up uploaded correctly. I promise I'm going to get all those episodes up as soon as possible. Uh, need to re-upload a couple things. This one should be good to go. But if you haven't gotten any for a while and you're like, hey, what's going on? What's with this gap? I truly apologize. The old ones are on YouTube if you want to watch. If you're watching on YouTube, again, like, subscribe, bell notification. But love you guys. Uh, had a nice little break. It's a good rest. Ready to dive back in. Exciting times in the MMA industry. Lots of exciting things going on behind the scenes I can't even talk about right now. But hopefully I will get to talk about one day soon ideally uh but yeah just just fun fun times let me know if you have any questions i still have a couple questions to answer from last year i will get to those i've been digging down some leads on a couple of those questions so keep them coming i haven't forgot about them uh any comments any other questions you want to know about the business side of things let me know any topics i should cover hit me with them and until next time get money 2022 style